Hello and welcome to Talking HE. My name is Santini Vasant. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Atif Ghani, film producer and currently researcher for the all-party parliamentary group on cultural diversity. Atif is looking at what works in order to create a diversity in the talent pipeline to the cultural and creative industries. We discuss what Atif has learnt as a film producer that could apply to students in higher education. What are some of the barriers to those underrepresented in the film industry today and what higher education can do? What Atif has learnt in his current role and what has surprised him? And we briefly touch on his vision for the creative industries in the next 30 years. We hope you enjoy this episode. My name's uh, Dr. Atif Ghani. I am a producer, um, but I am currently working as a researcher for the all-party parliamentary group on creative diversity. We are looking specifically at ways and what works um, to increase the talent pipeline for the creative industries and what works specifically in creative education. So creative education being both formal and non-formal education at a sort of plus 16 age group. What have you learned during your time as a film producer that students in higher education would really benefit from? Great question. As someone who spent a lot of time as a student um, in HE, um, having completed a PhD um, here in the UK some time ago now, and then stepped into industry, always interested in the more intellectual pursuits. Um, my journey into filmmaking was, in a way, a continuation of my HE journey in so much I was interested in ideas and I was interested in producing works of scale um, and engaging with ideas of scale. And out of that, uh, when you posed the question to me, I found myself reflecting and thinking what really, what, what really, what I've really learned over the last 30 years as a producer is the power of storytelling. I mean, mm. story is all around us in the world that we live. Um, and in particular, when we think of the social sciences and we think of the humanities, it is story. It's often us trying to tell a story or share a story or inform others about the ways people live or interact and engage with the aims of informing or maybe even changing opinion. And in many ways, those are the same principles that I've really spent a lot of time thinking about and really the core strength, I'd say, and and excitement about being a producer is, is storytelling. Um, I mean, film in the world that we live now is so all pervasive. Film has actually now become 
in a way, almost during my generation, uh, what was conceivably a kind of early art form. You know, we we forget that it's just over 100 years old, maybe 120 years old, maybe coming close to 130 years old, and is now, I would say, maturing into a kind of more middle stage art form. And as a result, it's very nuanced, but also audiences for film have become much more aware of reading film language. I mean, the example I would give is uh, when we watch trailers now for a film, most Mm. people within the span of 15 seconds even of that trailer can make a judgment and a decision on what kind of film it is, um, the types of story beats that will take place, uh, the the types of characters that will be portrayed and quickly will be making decisions about whether or not they want to engage with that work. So in that way, film has become something of a mature format in the world we live in, but it also has now become very much all per per. It has now become all pervasive in the world that we live in where film is, is, is functioning as for many people, the our principal ways into understanding life, understanding social networks, understanding um, social behaviors and in human interactions. These are many of the themes that historically we look to HE and again in the social sciences and the humanities um, to reflect and to learn. Film has sort of taken on that capacity. And so for me, my journey into film was, is in a way and has been a, a, a continuation of my journey um, from HE. And, and, and like HE, I think what's interesting about film is the desire to make truth claims. In some ways, I often say actually making a film is even more challenging than than making truth claims in academia. In academia, one can often use um, conventions and devices um, to suggest that your findings are true. Whereas in film, you've got to maintain a suspension of disbelief such that a person will sit quietly in a seat, let's say in a cinema, for 90 Mm. minutes and Mm. not need to shift and not need to move and actually believe what they're seeing on the screen to be true. Yes, that's a powerful analogy there. What do you think are some of the barriers to those that are underrepresented in the film industry today? And what do you think higher education or creative industries could do to address that? Interesting question. The film industry as a field uh, mirrors in many ways a lot of the issues that we are seeing currently in HE. They mirror basically each other as a field. And for me, I think the way to address that question or to think about it is to to look at uh, macro considerations and sort of micro considerations. Mm. And I... From 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 a macro from a macro perspective, it it feels to me at the moment one of one one of the one of the issues around uh, barriers to underrepresented uh, voices and practitioners in the film industry. So on a macro level, the film industry, like other industries, 
I think really suffers from an overemphasis on identity as part of what I would call a deficit model, where when we think of underrepresented voices, let's say in the film industry, whether on screen or behind the screen, there seems to be an overemphasis on trying to find a way to add those voices to um, what is a kind of baseline British film industry, let's say, um, which I think is very challenging. Um, I, I think we're at a moment now where we need to start to think about shifting our thinking from a kind of deficit model into a kind of asset-based model where we think more about the value and insights that these particular perspectives and subjectivities and you know diverse communities have to say about the world. So if I give you an example, if we look at the sort of British Asian film industry or British Asian films as a, as a concept, almost by definition, it begins as a subset of a British film industry, which itself is already really quite a, a small and, if you like, cottage industry. Uh, I know that might be difficult um, for some listeners to, to perceive, but when we think of the British film industry, the, although there was 220 films last year that came out of the British film industry, the majority mm -hmm. of those films are actually large American um, tentpole films. So a film like The Batman or Doctor Strange 2, um, mm -hmm. although they're defined as British. So the British film industry itself is already quite a uh, cottage, I use cottage, but quite a niche industry in some ways. Um, they're probably under 100 um, truly independent British films that get made each year. So films by British independent film, I would say a film that's about British stories um, that are telling, um, providing insights about uh, life in Britain. And then within that, you then have this issue of British Asian, which feels almost like a subset, which then needs to, you know, be brought up um, and brought into um, this sort of British, the, the British film industry. And I think that therein lies my notion of the, the deficit model. There's a kind of thinking that there's an ongoing need for a hand up. And the mm. question is, well, what are we pulling people giving the hand up into. And here I think we're at a point where maybe we need to start to think a bit about a kind of asset-based uh, model where we really value um, the global stories um, that, you know, various, that different people from their various different um, diverse communities bring. And again, if we think specifically about British Asian stories, and Asian diaspora stories. Um, mm. These stories resonate to a much larger, larger global marketplace and audiences. Mm. Now, in in thinking about that in relation to HE, um, I think we we have a we have a similar we have a similar conundrum when we we talk about decolonization. Um, you know, there's been, right. as you know, a, a, a real yeah interesting discussion around decolonizing the curriculum and thinking seriously about decolonization and putting that at the center of the future of learning, um, of student experience. And yet, 
we need to make sure when we think about decolonization that it's, again, not a part of this deficit model, something that's being brought up to speed, uh, where there, if you like, a baseline and excluded voices or perspectives are being brought into that baseline, hmm. but rather the baseline itself and that decolonization as an exercise is really interrogating the baseline itself and allowing for new, if you like, narratives, perspectives, voices to be given an equal footing. As you were talking, I was thinking about a recent film, What's Love Got to Do With It?, which is a, a British film, Lily James and, and others, which is actually a story of arranged marriages in the Pakistani community. It's told in West London through a you know, arranged marriage, Asian arranged marriage perspective in a kind of British independent film context. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, it absolutely uh, is. But again, I think with that example, the, the fact that it explores almost, if you like, the one of the the known themes of the arranged marriage itself is it's interesting. It's interesting that we return to some of these themes. And yes, there is an identification that there is an interest. And in a way, there's a global market for those stories. I think that's the, the side of things I think we have to sometimes embrace. Mm. But there's also a regulation of the types of stories we're allowed to tell. So, you know, when we think of arranged marriages, there's probably been a disproportionate number of an arranged marriage stories um, of all the, of the few British Asian stories that have come uh, over the last that have been that have been produced over the last little while. I mean, I find it interesting to reflect on something like Slumdog Millionaire. I mean, that's mm. a bit of an older film now, mm. but that isn't that scene as a that scene as a British film. And one has to and 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 maybe in the right way, but also in the wrong way. Right way in so much as it's the potential to tell, you know, quintessentially British stories, but to tell stories using British talent to a global marketplace. But the story itself um, is given a kind of Britishness label and given a kind of global appeal in part because of Danny Boyle as a director hmm. at the time. And in a way, there's a need again to, it's about dealing with these subtleties, Santanu, in my opinion, mm. around, you know, what I still perceive as this kind of deficit model, this sense of the need to empower um, the black filmmaker, the need to empower um, diverse filmmakers, rather than, in a way, uh, recognizing that some of these filmmakers are already empowered and that they need to be recognized for their empowered voices and the work that they're showing, but but also to enable, in a way, a new generation of stories and storytelling, which is really much more global and much more inclusive in terms mm. of perspective. Mm. And I think therein therein lies, you know, sort of part of the part of the challenge. Yes, that's an interesting perspective as we continue to look at this in the 21st century. What's one thing that's really surprised you about your current role and what's one thing that you've learnt? Well, funnily enough, one of the things that's really caught me off guard and it's genuinely has surprised me has been the way which is something which is actually very much embedded within the creative and cultural industries and how this particular how this particular thing is, is ended up 
reproducing existing social inequalities, which is work experience, and in particular, working for free. I mean, hmm. the culture of working for free and work experience is very much a rites of passage when you work in the creative industries, or it has been historically. Hmm. And even for myself, uh, from the employers or as a producer wearing my producer's hat, I would uh, regularly expect uh, junior or entry level young people and learners who are on my crew and on the set to be working for free. Hmm. But it's sort of in hindsight and having done this sort of academic, this recent work with the APPG and UAL, I've really been struck by the way that free working for free and work experience free work experience has the real danger of excluding voices and excluding opportunities for those who really can't afford to work for free mm. and taking that very seriously and i think that that's really affected me it's affected me but it's also affected me to sort of deal with a conundrum because, you know, one wants to put as much money and resourcing actually into producing the work. So often the, the work experience person is is not the only one working for free. There'll be others working for free. So yeah. there's, there's, a, there's a quandary there. Um, yeah. But um, on the flip side of things, uh, I have also been struck. And this is the, for me, another really big point. Um, that I was alert to prior to stepping into my research at the APBG, but really I, I continue to feel it now, which is, you know, uh, in 2013, I actually, I went for a job as a uh, diversity and inclusion officer at the BFI. And right. that's, you know, almost, almost 10 years, well, 10 years ago this summer. And it's, I didn't get the post. Uh, I'm pretty certain I didn't get the post because at the time I was espousing the need to basically fund more work by black and minority ethnic sort of film practitioners. Hmm. And I think they were looking for people to come in to do more sort of heavy data analytics. But the reality is over the last 10 years, considering the amount of resourcing and time and intellectual prowess, and in, if you like even initiatives that have gone into trying to increase um, inclusion and diversity within specifically the, the film industry, why is it that the numbers continue to keep going down? Hmm. Lenny Henry has been reminding all of us that, you know, to look at the numbers and we continue to see the actual numbers of, you know, black and ethnic minority sort of practitioners and hmm. on-screen representation and work as dropping. So yeah. what's what's happening there? For me, I can see, you know, to be a little bit controversial, it's clear that there is a, a di there is a a diversity industry. Uh, I I don't want to use the term whitewashing because I think that's probably unfair, but I mean I, I was reading back on a report from the LSE from 2020 by Clive Noonka, I mean who stated quite firmly, I mean. You know, black and ethnic minority groups face tremendous levels of exclusion from the film industry. I mean, his use of the term tremendous, I thought, was really quite profound. And mm. this, again, goes in counterpoint to the fact that, you know, these institutions are spending good budgets on diversity initiatives. They have professionals and specialists inside of their organizations. 
So why aren't we seeing increased numbers? I can I can see that as a film goer in terms of the kind of narratives that are on screen. It's pervasive in other areas of 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 society as well. Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, Sanson, I wanted to mention, you know, dare I, I, I mention it, but I will, you know, what I would call the myth of meritocracy. Uh, this this belief that you know if you work hard and if you 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 put the time in you will get your just results and you will get your 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 due and i think that in a way this myth has been perpetuated in part uh by some of the sort of uh, equality diversity and inclusion professionals who've been sort of upholding it in some ways or being used maybe to uphold the myth because we should be seeing change. And in a way, maybe, Santanu, this brings me back to my thinking around the, this, sh- maybe our, the need for us to shift from a kind of deficit model to an asset-based model, where we, we move from simply an exercise of inclusion to one that really thinks hard about difference and how we engage with those perspectives that aren't ours those Mm. perspectives that we don't share Mm. and i think you know one of the beauties of film for me santanu was the fact that therein lies a space and an environment to actually really try to explore some of these themes yeah it's a very rich medium isn't it in terms of um, the exploration as opposed to text which is still very much the gold standard at least in academia for output especially at um, doctorate level and even master's level uh, for a lot of our students absolutely and i think that uh, you know and yet it is as a point of reference i mean think you know inversely let's look at the number of phds you know let's say in the last 30 years that have actually been produced written phds produced based on films and films you know I think the visual medium has matured and I think academia in some ways, at least on the level of, you know, as a practitioner, as a film practitioner, it should be recognizing um, film publishing um, on par with other significant works of scale. Mm. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, So it kind of brings me to my final question around what do you think briefly your vision is for creative education and the creative industries in say 30 years time? Well, you know, this is a very difficult question, Santanu, because you know, yes. I'm struggling to I'm struggling to imagine what, what things look like in 10 years' time, uh, let alone um 30 years' time. I, I I've just come out of a seminar where People are talking about uh, 80% of all jobs that exist are going to vanish by 2030. Um, mm. you know, how true this is, you know, I, I I don't know. But I suppose, you know, bringing it back to what I know and maybe what I feel, um, it, it does seem to me um, that the more that we can shift um, from our current sort of problem-based learning models and and move to models which are really experiential and blended um, at the core, the better. Um, you know, film mm. 
provides film provides a really great example of this for me in so much as by making a film one can learn all of the types of roles and responsibilities that go into a film. So obviously mm. another way that one can learn, you know, a, a good example of this is the credits. At the end of every film, and some films much longer than others, there's credits, which obviously list usually hundreds. The average film set is probably around 120 crew members, but they could obviously be much more with assistants and and uh, co-producers and executives and partners but one can actually learn all of those credits by you know memorizing um uh, a kind of dictionary of of roles mm. but one can also learn all of those credits and their title those titles by working on a set and gaining the experience of understanding what each of those people do and how they go about doing it and 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 what makes their their skill unique and i mm. think that sort of thinking around experiential that ex, that lived experience as integral to learning but also that process emphasis i think we we as soon as possible need to begin to emphasize day in the, the learning process rather than outcomes. Atif concluded by discussing the importance of creativity. I mean, for, for what it's worth, I actually wanted to make a little, uh, d discuss the importance of creativity. So, I mean, Santini, you, you've been a, um, helped me challenge uh, my own thinking about the idea of creativity. I think yourself and others have, have alerted me to the need, I think, for us to put a new critical lens on the use and our own thinking around creativity. I think creativity is a becoming a dangerous catch-all that needs um, some critical reflection. So a kind of critical creativity, I think, is a, a very welcome idea and something we need. We all recognize that creativity and innovation are necessary components about the move into the future and to provide some of the necessary solutions for the decarbonization and the decolonization of our institutions moving forward. But often creativity is simply thrown out as this sort of huge catch-all. And I mm. think it often can undermine the actual realities of it and undermine the beauty of it, but also undermine the struggles that one goes through to sort of believe in their own creativity or believe in the creativity of others. Mm. And so I, I think a kind of critical lens on creativity is really necessary in this, in our current moment. Thank you to Dr. Atif Ghani for his time. If you've got a comment or a question, then please tweet us at TalkingHEPod or email santanu at santanuvasant Com. Thanks for listening. I've been Santinu Vasant, and this has been Talking HE.